Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. I already got a note from my gym. I thought it was a masterclass in how to communicate that there will be closures because the note from my gym basically said, don't worry, you won't be paying across this period of time. We know how you feel. We've got all this content online. You know, uh, we're all in this together. So, you know, really took it in its stride. And I just thought that is how you communicate to your customers. Welcome to Money and Me. Rules on social gatherings will be tightened this Saturday as Singapore takes stricter measures to stop the spread of COVID-19 in the wider community. We ask, what could this mean for your local portfolio in the short term? We saw Nasdaq sliding 0.4% overnight. It is off 3% over the past week. So what is behind the tech sell-off? And is this a buying opportunity? Also, Fundstrat Global Advisors co-founder Tom Lee said earlier this week he remains bullish on the energy sector. He said, I think the entire energy complex is a buy. Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, weighs in on some of these questions. All of these questions hopefully we'll have time for. Arun, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Michelle. I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Good to speak with you as always. All right. So come Saturday, how how are you going to cope? How are you taking this, the the new you rules? Know, mm-hmm. Well, we've been through this before, right? Luckily, yeah. it's not a circuit breaker. I think consumers, people, individuals and businesses to some extent are kind of mentally prepared. And we all knew this was not going to be like a straight line going back to life is great, right? Like mm-hmm. there's always going to be setbacks. Just fingers crossed, you know, just fingers crossed that this small, relatively small measure, I I should say, uh, ensures the long-term safety of uh, individuals over here. So that's the hope. That is the bigger goal in mind. All right. So we know that when it comes to the curbs that will kick in on Saturday, this will mean curbs on large gatherings at restaurants because you can only seat five, not eight. Uh, There will be a smaller lunch crowd because more people are going to continue to work from home. And that is likely to weigh on particularly the restaurant sector. But if we take a step back, what do you think Singapore's return to phase two means for REITs, for stocks and consumer facing companies? You know, it, it's interesting. Like, MAS comes out with, like, a monthly macroeconomic review. And in their April edition, there was, like, this statement which clearly stated the negative relationship between mobility restrictions and economic activity has weakened. Basically put, you know, people, companies, MNCs, SMEs, whatever it might be, are kind of adjusting to this new normal of life where there will be some kind of lockdowns, there will be some kind of mobility restriction. It's not going to be gangbuster, opening of the doors, everyone just flocking in in a crazy sale. So from that regard, it really does seem after, you know, like the last one year, and this is, it's literally been like over a year, right? I think the circuit breaker started, what, in like April, May of last year? Mm-hmm. It's really been that long where people have had the time to adjust to some extent, mentally speaking. And on the other side, companies are starting to understand this thing is going to stay. Like I was talking to a friend of mine who runs this catering company over here in Singapore, local SME. Mm. You know, obviously it's been a very, very difficult time, but the ability to try and pivot, you know, make it into more like a tech platform, that's the name of the game. Like that's how companies survive. So from that regard, I would like to think that at least some kind of the smaller company 
given the safety net the government has provided, like all these COVID loans at an extremely attractive interest rate, they'll be able to pivot their business model to some extent. The larger ones, they obviously have a much more solid balance sheet, or at least many of them are listed on the STI. So we are hoping that you know they'll be able to get through this next maybe a month, maybe two, three months, vaccinations roll out a lot more, and then we see how it goes. So overall, I feel the effect on the economy really should not be that much. Mm. I think the government has done a fantastic measure of being very, very proactive in this case. Seeing what's happened in India, especially where this variation has like, you know, it's like, it's like wildfire across the entire country. Lock this place down a little bit, control it a little bit more right now. Take that short-term slight pain to ensure the long-term survival is a lot better. All right. Good to hear. Uh, meanwhile, though, earlier this week, after Jumbo Group, for example, said it expects to report first half net losses because of persistently muted footfall from social distancing rules. We saw stocks in Singapore restaurant sector drop, you know, down Japan foods fell, uh, Kim Lee fell. Um, so do you think that uh, when it comes to the restaurant sector in particular, what can what can I do as an investor to figure out the extent to which my stocks could be hit by these new social distancing rules. And is the most important factor to consider uh, working capital for the companies involved. Absolutely no doubt about that, right? I mean, let's take a look at Jumbo. These guys clocked in something like 10 or $12 million profit in 2019, pre the COVID pandemic. In the calendar year of 2020, that went from a plus plus. $12 million profit to a minus $8 million loss. You're talking about such massive swings on the back of your entire restaurant is shut down, right? Like you still have a certain amount of cost, obviously like the rentals in some cases, you've got to have at least a skeleton amount of staff. So they've borne a huge brunt of this COVID pandemic when there was a complete lockdown. Eight people to five people, yes, it's going to affect, you know, obviously their top line, obviously their bottom line. And more so, I think, investor interest in that space. Maybe investors as a whole were a little bit too uh, exuberant, I guess, in terms of, okay, Singapore's done fantastically well. It's going to be a straight line back up to, you know, growth and back up to like pre-COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. What has this taught us? You know, a couple of cases, one cluster forms, and rightly so, the government has to lock stuff down. So from that regard, I think the restaurant, the F&B sector, is going to take a bit of a hit. You know, banks, uh, we saw in their last quarterly earnings, uh, they started releasing all their NPL or non-performing loan reserves. Maybe it's a little bit, you know, time to become a little bit more cautious and see how the overall economy picks up. You know, it, it, this is it, it's such a fast-moving pace of people release, like get, getting vaccinated, at least to some extent that, you know, mitigates the effects on the healthcare sector. But on the other hand, you know, if this place goes under lockdown, restaurants are going to be hugely affected. Working capital that you mentioned, extremely important. When you are a small, like a startup or an SME, you're literally like living hand to mouth, right? Because it's such a difficult time. You do not have that extremely robust balance sheet. You do not have those huge cash reserves. You need to be playing your employees something. What's the most important uh, card over here? It's the lender of last resort. The government has to kick in, ensure the survival of these SMEs, giving them some kind of COVID loans, giving them some kind of moratoriums on 
uh, their outstanding uh, uh, loans, etc. Like any kind of way to try and help these companies tide over the next three to six months to hope that they'll be able to come back in a much more stronger fashion. That is the hope. Now, you mentioned banks, so I'm just going to throw this in and and you take it to whatever depth you'd like to. But we do have fresh indication this morning of the health of Singapore's financial sector because UOB, which is Singapore and Southeast Asia's third largest bank, is reporting an 18% jump in profits compared with a year earlier. So do you think the finance sector has recovered from the pandemic broadly? So UOB, you know, just came out a couple of hours back. BBS yep. came out with stellar earnings a couple of days ago. And that's been one of my, like, favorite stocks to hold. Is this going to be a smooth sailing for banks? Absolutely not, right? Like, but are there balance sheets, at least the three main ones in Singapore, especially BBS, I would like to say, are they extremely rock solid? I believe so. So from that regard... I think if, if the banks are smart about this and if they can take this opportunity to try and like, you know, scalp up some prized assets of competitors, mm-hmm. and we're seeing like news of DBS looking at Citibank, uh, you know, you will be expanding into the greater China region. Like if they're very smart about this and they're able to expand in a cautious, pragmatic way while not affecting their balance sheet too much, I think there can be a lot of attractive assets out there in countries that are much worse hit, like Philippines, Indonesia, India, some extent China or Hong Kong. So from that regard, I still am bullish the banking sector, the financial sector in Singapore, at least the three main banks. Mm-hmm. But with a word of caution, I think you know the release of NPL reserves might have been a little bit too quick, maybe a little bit too aggressive, because we need to see over the next six, nine months how this evolves. Because the one thing that we've learned from this is, even with vaccinations out there, you know, there could be a variation that really sets back the economy by a little bit. So UOB says it's witnessing, quote, robust credit demand from large corporate and institutional clients. Uh, Last week, DBS reported a 70% jump in profits. Great Eastern reported a 12-fold jump. Uh, Singapore's financial counters, though, largely trended lower over the past week, up about 17 to 20% since the beginning of the year, though. So, you know, do you think the banking shares have already risen too far too fast? I think they came off a very, very low base to begin with, uh, because if you look at the financial sector overall, I mean, Singapore and especially the U.S. side also, they were trading at very attractive, pretty much any multiples you want to look at, like price to book, price to earnings, return of investment, invested capital. Across the board, the financial sector was one that was neglected quite heavily, I feel, by the investment community. And there was, don't get me wrong, there was a valid reason for that, right? With the fact that interest rates are so low across the entire curve. So how do, how do banks make their profit? Like the net interest margin, they are able to get depositors at the front end of the curve, paying them basically 0% interest, and they can lend money out at the back end of the curve to corporates, MNCs, etc. What we're seeing right now to some extent is the steepening of the curve. Steepening of the curve basically being in the front end, deposits, are still, you know, any amount of money that we have, Michelle, in the bank account is still getting paid a grand total of close to 0% interest, sadly. Oh. It's, it's not, but it, you know, it is what it is. But on the back end of the curve, we are seeing the 20-year, 30-year yield curve in the U.S. and, you know, obviously back calculated, the Singapore curve is starting to rise. And as you just mentioned, you know, UOB was mentioned there was very good credit demand from companies. Mm. I wouldn't say the companies across the entire spectrum, but there are a certain 
businesses that are getting a huge tailwind because of this COVID pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you look at the semiconductor industry, we look at some certain tech stocks, they need that capital from financial institutions to fund their really robust growth. So when you have that, banks can really make a very attractive net interest margin from that by lending out in the back end of the curve and thereby their profits keep increasing. Now, that's only been happening over the past like four to six months, and we've clearly seen bank stocks rising from lows on the back of that. I still do believe, looking you know more longer term, I have no idea what's going to happen in the next two, three, six months mm-hmm. for banking stocks, mm-hmm. but in the long run, at least the ones in Singapore and the U.S., and, you know, sorry, I've said this many times over the past six months or nine months. I really do believe that in the long run, these two specific sectors are, well, the one sector that banks in both the U.S. and Singapore, I think will have a very attractive return on the investment. All right. Well said. Well said. Arun Pai joining us live, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Right. Let's talk about that tech sell off. Not easy to look at, you know, what's behind it all. U.S. stock futures flatten overnight trading. If we look at the Nasdaq slid 0.4% overnight of 3% over the past week. I read an interesting article on a marketplace that basically said it's the boomers, the older cohort of traders that seem to have participated in the sell off that knocked about um, some 1.8% of the tech-concentrated NASDAQ 100. Arun, what do you think? Um, What's behind the tech sell-off? Wasn't tech the biggest gainer for last year? And don't investors typically look decades ahead when it comes to tech? Well, uh, to some extent, investors definitely do. But it's those same people who sadly, when they see some kind of scary macro headline news, they're the first ones to, you know, take the chips off the table. But uh, it's, no, I think the point that you mentioned where wealthy boomers were taking money off the table because of a variety of factors, right? Mm -hmm. You look at what Biden just announced, the capital gains tax. It's going from 20% to a shy under 40% for people who are earning more than a million dollars. Is it required? Absolutely. I mean, the U.S. has this massive fiscal uh, deficit to try this hole to try and plug. The only way they can do that is by increasing taxes. What's a good way to try and pull this off? You know, tax the rich people a little bit more, increase the capital gains tax by a lot. But what's that led to is these same people, like these rich boomers to some extent, who made a lot of money, exactly what you mentioned, right? Like last year, tech was an extremely hot sector, made a lot of money sitting on a lot of unrealized gains, why take the, you know, even if it's like a 10% probability, the profits can be like slashed in half because of the increase of capital gains, like close to doubling. So from that regard, I think that spooked the markets a little bit. Then we had other headline news of like, you know, this whole universal minimum corporate tax. That caused some tremors in the market because if you look at Amazon, Apple, Google, all of these guys, right? This has been a big complaint of the EU and, for that matter, the U.S. government. They've uh, U.S. grown businesses, born and raised over there, set up a subsidiary shop in Ireland, Cayman, BVI, Caribbean islands, etc., and they route all their revenues through there, in which corporate taxes are zero, five, or ten percent. And that's led to this, you know, that that's partially leading to like this huge deficit in the U.S because they're just not able to accrue that kind of tax amount. So from that regard, I think these two uh, major headline news caused 
a rough sell-off in the Nasdaq. But last but not the least, you know, Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, coming out saying interest rates may need to rise somewhat. And she was obviously being a little bit cagey about the statement because she's not in the Fed anymore. Mm. And the Fed obviously needs to be independent. Mm -hmm. But she did come out with a statement saying that interest rates may need to rise somewhat uh, because of these signs of inflation. And that obviously led another big correction in the market because people started getting a lot more scared that the Fed's going to start increasing uh, interest rates. Yeah, and she had to backtrack that statement and said, listen, this is a tool that the Fed has to use at its disposal should this happen. Now, do you think the pain from the tech sell-off could spread? There is, a, if you look at the second best performing cluster of stocks since January 20th, according to Vander Research, it's transport materials uh, services, financials, so cyclicals and a bevy of reopening plays. Do you anticipate that the older boomer cohort is uh, going to continue selling? I think the tech sell-off could have some more wings because people will still like to take off you know, some money from sectors that have done really well. But I do feel the benefit of this is not going to be you know, extra cash levels because at the end of the day, your interest rates are still zero. Inflation is kicking in. If you saw, you know, the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting, they were saying we are seeing price increases all across the board, especially mm-hmm. in the house construction segment. So we are seeing a lot more of the cyclical sectors coming back into play. Money's taken out of tech, going more into these cyclical places to ensure that you can at least your capital is not eroded because of inflation. Cash is probably not the place to keep money right now, nor has it been for the past couple of years or longer than that on the back of, you know, interest rates being basically close to zero. It's a green flag given by central banks across the world that you have to start deploying your capital somewhere. You can try to, you know, time the market and figure out, okay, I'm going to keep my cash at like 50% right now. There'll be a correction of 10, 12% and I'll put my money back in later. It works really well in hindsight, right? But the problem is in markets, you always have to be forward-looking. Right. Decades ideally, but even if not, at least like two to three to five years. And if you start taking your cash out and you start letting that get in, eroded by inflation, which can easily, which you're already seeing it pick up steam, you have to be very, very careful about that because your capital can get eroded very quickly. Where do you have to put your money in? Can't put it into bonds right now, given the interest rates are so abysmally low. Tech, potentially some stocks still are there, are out there that still look reasonably attractive, I would say. You know, Google is one stock that I've always, uh, you know, liked to invest into. A couple of others, I think, uh, you know, be it Facebook or Amazon, I think they might have some more. uh, I mean, all of these large tech companies obviously have uh, the the government uh, knocking on their doors. But I do feel some more so than others. Microsoft, Google could be ones that are slightly more attractive, both in a valuation perspective and just having a huge competitive moat. But overall, the tech sector, it has been in quite a bit of a bubble. And hence, you know, looking at other sectors, be it financials, be it cyclicals, be it energy stocks, 
I think is the place to park some amount of capital. All right, let's get into those energy stocks then. Um, do you think that this is one of the areas where the risk rewards is one of the best areas in terms of looking at risk rewards right now? Uh, Fundstrat, Tom Lee, he's Fundstrat Global Advisor, speaking to CNBC, said he thinks the entire energy complex is a buy. We know that oil was hit hard uh, by the sharp reduction in travel, of course, but we've also seen quite a rebound, right, given the rollout of vaccines and optimism over economic reopening, reigniting demand. Uh, so uh, tell us about what you're excited about with the energy sector. You know, that's definitely been a sector that I've been quite bullish on from the beginning of the year. And I know that might not be a very ESG-friendly statement to make and all of that, and I get it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think this is an industry that really does need to pivot to a very large extent or at least start making very large investments to ensure that they can either be carbon neutral or start making investments into the more renewable side of uh, energy. And they are making it to some extent. It's just that, you know, turning around this massive ship, that is say like if you're an Exxon or Chevron, it does take time. It's not going to happen overnight. But what also is not going to happen overnight is the lack of demand for be it coal or oil or the traditional ways of generating electricity. You know, it's great to say, uh, and this is my personal opinion, obviously, it's great to say that everything should be renewable, right? But are people today, like if this happens tomorrow, are people be are people willing to pay 50%, 100%, 200% more for their usage of be it their car or be it, you know, using electricity at home? Probably not. So I think there has to be a transition. And I think the fact that, uh, the world as a whole has taken this problem of climate change and looking at it in a lot more aggressive manner is fantastic. Are these large energy conglomerates uh, supposed to try and, you know, make themselves more ESG friendly? 100% yes. But has the investment community looking, you know, just going by headlines of be it ESG, be it a couple of these really large money managers not putting, not going to be investing in any of these large energy stocks, has that led to some kind of value being created in this sector? I think so. So from that regard, like these large conglomerates, I think, you know, oil tanker space, product tanker space, especially uh, container stocks, container transportation stocks have seen a massive rally. The best performing uh, stock in the STI, Yang Zijiang Shipping, you know, one of my favorite bets, has been doing phenomenally well on the back of uh, massive order uh, increases in terms of uh, be it container ships or they started increasing their exposure into the LNG space. So all of these factors, I think if it's it's very important, like the energy space, I think is very attractive valuation-wise. Should people be going into it overall? Yes, that's a simple way of doing it through ETFs, obviously. Mm. But in addition to that, I think looking at companies, looking at their annual reports, trying to identify which management team is most hell-bent on trying to ensure that they can stick to the ESG norms, stick to carbon neutral by, say, 2030, 2040. Those are going to be, you know, like long-term winners, I feel. And those are the ones to try and get exposure into. Always fascinating insights from you, Arun. You notice I spared you any conversation on Dogecoin today. 
<laughs> you know, it's so sad. I remember coming onto the show like about you know every week, obviously, but a month ago or two months ago, saying you know this Dogecoin, I don't get it. Unlimited supply, and what what happened? It's up five times or ten times. But okay, here's a tidbit just for fun. If you had invested a thousand dollars in Dogecoin on January first, it'd be worth more than a hundred and twenty thousand dollars today. So who's laughing, hey? <laughs> Thanks as always, Arun, for joining us. My pleasure, Michelle. Thanks for having me. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.